Chapter Twelve of An Angler's Hours by Hugh Tempest Sheringham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve: The Mystery of a Thames Salmon. Amaryllis said, "William, with studied carelessness, is thinking of taking up fishing." I did not encourage him, merely saying, "Oh." in as non-committal a tone as I could manage. He went on rather dubiously. She wants to catch salmon because they make such good presents. I nodded politely, but did not comment on his statement. William has been married to Amaryllis for three months, and is the most dutiful of husbands. He seemed a little dashed by my lack of sympathy, and relighted his pipe, which had gone out. Then he returned gallantly to the charge. "'And so, you know, we thought I'd better come and see you, because you know about fishing, and could tell us what to do and where to go. It'll be awfully good of you. Amaryllis suggested that you might go out with us next Saturday, and put us in the way of it. Where shall we go?' Having got thoroughly into his subject, William acquired confidence, and his concluding question took, I thought, a good deal for granted. He has not yet got over his delighted wonder that so unworthy a person as himself should have been chosen to render domestic obedience to Amaryllis, and he is still inclined to exact for her extramural obedience on the part of his friends, which, to do us justice, we are in general very willing to accord, for she is the most charming little autocrat in the world. Nevertheless, there are occasions on which one must obey with judgment, and when William pointed out that, even though I was going to fish the itchin on Saturday, and even though there were no salmon there, still Amaryllis might be willing to content herself with trout, large ones, I hastened to exercise the judgment aforesaid. Itch and trout, I assured him, were not to be caught in a day, even by Amaryllis. Was he aware, I asked, that one of the most noted experts living had only killed one small fish during the whole of his first season? Did he think that his wife would be willing to persevere at least as long? I put the case somewhat strongly, because I had a vision of Keeper Jobson's face when he should come upon the wedded pair seated side by side and dangling lobworms in a hatch-hole. Fortunately, William saw the point, and was convinced that Amaryllis would require more speedy success. And besides, it was salmon she wanted, not trout. He invited other suggestions. I gave him some. I told him what were the chances of a young and uninfluential married couple in the matter of salmon angling. I've forgotten now what the figures were, but they roughly represented a cost of from ten to a hundred guineas per pound of fish, according to the locality of the fishing, and they considerably lengthened William's face. He said he had no idea that it would be so costly a business. They could, of course, as his wife had intimated, lessen the outlay somewhat by borrowing the necessary implements from me, but even so it required 
consideration. He would go home and talk it over with Amaryllis in the light of the information that I had so kindly given him. He went, and for some days I heard no more of the matter, which seemed just as well. It would be absurd if these two young people were really to add the angling fever to the other woes of married life. Then came a note to me from Amaryllis. "'Please come to tea,' it ran. "'We have found out where we can catch salmon for nothing,' she underlined the word, "'and I want to show you how wrong you were.' One rather likes to be shown how wrong one was by Amaryllis. So I went and found her triumphant. "'There,' she said, giving me a little slip of newspaper as I took my teacup. "'What do you think of that?' Willie said that what you didn't know about fishing wasn't worth knowing. Is that worth knowing, please? Amaryllis's eyelashes curl upwards at the end and can look very mischievous. But it was not my fault if William had misrepresented me as an oracle on the subject of my particular hobby. That he should apologise for me, then, by saying that everybody is liable to make mistakes, I regarded as my misfortune, and I proceeded in self-defence to read the newspaper cutting. It was headed Salmon for the Thames, and stated in a few words that a further consignment of young salmon had been liberated by the association which undertakes that laudable work. In fact, the paragraph closely resembled others that I had seen before, and I did not feel that it required any particular comment, or that it possessed any particular significance. I looked to Amaryllis for enlightenment, and was told without delay that if some people put salmon into the Thames, other people could take them out again, and moreover could make presentation thereof to Aunt Elizabeth and other objects of deserved esteem. "'Certainly,' agreed William, weightily. It seemed that he did not object to being a little oracular himself when it could be done in the safe form of conjugal agreement. It may be that subsequent events found me too ready to take the broad downward path that I lost for a moment, uh, for a good many moments, the frank-faced candour that should be an angler's proudest quality. But I would plead that I conscientiously endeavoured to explain to the pair what the paragraph signified, and that they steadily refused to be convinced. Also, as I have mentioned, Amaryllis's eyelashes are not to be disregarded in a discussion. "'It says salmon,' she asserted, with a little toss of her head. If it meant pars, or whatever you call them, it would say so. Undoubtedly, William threw in. I don't believe you know anything at all about it, she continued with dignity. You weren't there. I believe they put in quite big salmon, so that they might begin to fish for them at once. I call it very wise of them and very stupid of you to be so obstinate. Amaryllis's eyelashes almost touched her cheek, 
and betokened that their mistress was quite hurt about it. I gave way. You may be right, I admitted. The eyelashes left the cheek, and Amaryllis looked up brightly. I believe you are only teasing me, she said. And to make up, now you admit I am right, you must come and help us catch them. You must, old man, William added. Can't do less. So it came about that, not long afterwards, three persons were seated on three Windsor chairs in a punt anchored in a certain backwater of the Thames. Two of them were prepared to give battle to any salmon that might be in the vicinity. The third, myself, was resignedly acting as philosopher and guide. It had seemed inadvisable to enlist the services of a professional fisherman, for it is not every fisherman who can enter into the spirit of a delicate situation. Amaryllis was confident that she was going to catch a salmon, and she expected a show of confidence in those around her. Anything like laughter, or even doubt, she would never have forgiven. William also would dutifully have shown resentment. So I put lobworms on barbell hooks for them, explained, in answer to certain initial complaints, that they had not been provided with eighteen-foot fly-rods, because the water was the wrong colour for the fly, and generally endeavoured to seek peace at the expense of veracity. After all, I can bait a hook, and I know as much of the haunts of Thames salmon as the next man. I hoped, too, that a long day spent in vain would cool Amaryllis's enthusiasm and that after it the incident would be regarded as closed, even at the expense of Father Thames's reputation as a salmon river. It was possible, of course, that she might ascribe failure to my inefficiency, but in that event she would not be unappeasable. If she were ever to learn that she had caught no salmon because there were none to catch, I should never be forgiven for letting her fish in error. The day wore on. We sought several fresh beets, save the mark, but never a touch indicated that salmon or anything else fancied lobworms on ledger tackle. We lunched, and I held forth at some length on the uncertainty of salmon fishing. I amended the ancient Thames story of the man who caught a brace of ten-pound trout the first day he fished the river five years ago, took a house on the banks on the strength of it, and had been there ever since fishing, early and late, without touching another, and gave it them. In my version he caught two twenty-pound salmon early in the sixties, but the other details were the same. Amaryllis was plainly impressed, and began to eye the river doubtfully. Then there was a momentary excitement over a small perch which had attached itself to William's lobworm. It excited her contempt as being a mere common fish, and was returned. A little later we boiled the kettle and had tea, and I told the story of the ardent but unfortunate angler who, since early boyhood, 
had been wandering from river to river throughout the United Kingdom, fishing day after day, but had never yet caught a salmon, though once he hooked and lost what his gilly said might have been a sea-trout. It was an almost probable story, and very convincing. Amaryllis looked at her rod with distaste, and feared she would never really have patience enough for fishing. In fact, all was going well. It was nearly time to go ashore for the train. She had had her day's salmon fishing, and was in a fair way to be persuaded that the fault of failure was not mine, but fate's, and all would doubtless have been well if she had not soon afterwards had a bite, and after a severe tussle succeeded in landing the fish. It was a three-pound chub, plump, silvery, and, as such a fish is apt to be, imposing. I was about to disclose its identity to Amaryllis, who was still palpitating with excitement, when William, looking at it judiciously, said suddenly, "'It is a salmon, by Jove!' That did the mischief. Amaryllis's secret suspicions were confirmed, and she at once agreed with him enthusiastically. She had seen salmon in shops, and they were just such big, bright fish as this. Its head was, perhaps, a trifle big, and some of its fins were red, but in all other respects it was just about what it should have been. I shrugged my shoulders. Their minds were made up, and it was no good saying anything, for they would not now have believed me. I merely observed, ironically, that his head and fins might be accounted for by their owners having been a long time in fresh water. They took me seriously, and said that it doubtless was so. After that we had to pack up in a hurry and catch our train. Amaryllis was all smiles and enthusiasm during the journey back to town. Luckily we had the carriage to ourselves, and when we parted at Waterloo she thanked me prettily for my trouble, and announced that she was going to send the lovely salmon to Aunt Elizabeth that very night. I went home wondering what the recipient would think of the gift when it came to table, and hoping that I, at least, might not hear of the matter again. I did not for some days, but about a week afterwards it was recalled to my memory rather violently by one in authority, who met me and waved the journal at me. "'Have you seen this?' he asked. I had not seen that and was promptly shown. The journal was the Hourly Alarm, and in it was an article entitled Salmon Returned to the Thames, Lady's Remarkable Capture. With many subheadings, such as Netted After the Ninth Leap, the article gave a grotesque but recognisable version of Amaryllis's exploit, and after a paragraph of superlatives, wandered into a remarkable life-history of the King of Fish, stating how it always works up rivers to feed and down them to spawn, and attributing the return of salmon to the Thames to a food supply increased by the winter floods. "'This is important,' said the one in authority. "'Not the gas, of course, but the fact. 
I gasped, and begged him not to take too much on trust, but somehow I could not tell him why I was so warm about it. He seemed surprised, but thanked me. But he had, he said, the best of reasons for believing that the fish was a real grilsey. He had ascertained the lady's name and address, William must have been talking in the city, and he proposed to call upon her without delay. With that we parted. Events have moved rapidly since then. I met the one in authority yesterday morning, and he was a very angry man. It had a big head and red fins, he explained shortly. It is disgraceful that these rumours should be published as facts in this way. The lady, he explained, had been herself misled, and apparently by some experienced angler who was with her. The name of that angler he intended to ascertain, and his tone implied dire consequences to the person in question. The one in authority does not like having his time wasted over trifles. When I got home I found a note from Amaryllis saying that doubts had been cast on the authenticity of her fish, and commanding me instantly to write letters to all the papers, giving my word as an angler that it was a salmon. Even Aunt Elizabeth was doubtful about it. Lastly, this morning, I find a paragraph in the Hourly Alarm headed Thames Salmon Cruel Hoax on a Lady, and filled with caustic observations about a certain gentleman who is responsible for the home stake, and who is, in plain words, invited to explain his conduct. So I am just throwing a few clothes into a portmanteau, and am leaving town for an indefinite period. Letters will not be forwarded. End of chapter 12